0: This is Tau Unbound, the English-language podcast of Tel Aviv University. Please welcome your host, Ido Aroni, Tel Aviv University's graduate, member of the Board of Governors, lecturer, writer, and veteran diplomat.
1: Welcome to Tau Unbound. I'm Ido Aroni, your host, and today I have the pleasure of hosting Professor Daphna Yoel. Daphna Yoel is with the School of Psychology and also part of the Sagol uh, Center for Human Sci- for your, uh, brain sciences, And uh, she's known for her groundbreaking work on the human brain. And we're here to talk about that. Uh, But before that, um, please tell us a little bit about yourself. Okay,
0: so let me start with saying that usually people that read about me in English will recognize me easier with Daphna Joel, because this is how I spell my name, uh, even though we all say Joel. And I'm a full professor here in the... Uh, school of Psychological Sciences and Segal School of Neuroscience, and I have I've been here from '98, so quite a long of time. And um, what else would you like to know?
1: Tell us about uh, where you're from.
0: Where I'm from, so I'm Israeli. I lived uh, home most of my life in Tel Aviv. I Studied here in the in Tel Aviv University. Started with medical school. Didn't like uh, decided I didn't want to be a, a physician. So switched to neuroscience, and have been here since I finished my PhD.
1: So you are a complete product of Tel Aviv University. Yes, for wow. better and for worse. <laughs> I think you're the first. You were like, uh, we've had, uh, I don't know, maybe fifteen episodes. The first time that I interviewed someone whose entire career was at Tel Aviv view. That's uh, that's quite uh, quite impressive. So um, so when did you decide that neuroscience is, is, is what you want to do? So
0: my whole career is quite um, I don't know accidental in, in a sense. So I started in uh, actually in Telpiot project in the Army, uh, studying in the Hebrew University, mathematics physics uh, and I started there only because it was the first time that they accepted women. So as a very feminist can, young Can woman. you
1: tell whatever you can uh, to our listeners and our viewers who are not familiar? with Talpiot, Can you tell us a bit, what is it?
0: Okay, so it's a special uh, program in the army that they draft very talented young uh, individuals. Uh, They do the BA in mathematics, physics, and computer science in the Hebrew University as soldiers, and during that time also learn a lot about the army. And the idea is that then they continue in the army and uh, help develop uh, weapons and other things that the army needs. So it was, in the beginning it was only for men, and uh, I was very annoyed about this because that when I was drafted, also uh, women cannot be pilots. M- many things were restricted, and I didn't understand why they cannot do this program because it's, you know, it's about studying, it's about being smart, it's not about uh, uh, taking heavy things and uh, that physical power should be of any uh, concern. And then it was open for women. So even though I didn't have special interest in being a computer science or a physician, I decided I have to go as a feminist. Uh, but after a year and a half in the program, although I liked a lot the, what I learned about the army, driving uh, tanks and uh, shooting cannons and things like this, I was quite uh, enthusiastic at that time. I, didn't want, I decided I didn't want to become an engineer or a computer scientist, and I left, completed my service in the regular army. Uh, and then uh, after this, you know, did my year around the world, as everyone is doing, uh, and didn't know what I wanted to do when I grow or grow up. So I decided to go to medical school. After one year there, I decided I didn't want to be a physician. Uh, and then joined a Tel Aviv University inter- interdisciplinary program for excellent students which was specific you know, for people like me that could do many things but didn't know what exactly they wanted to do. And uh, I, one of the lectures that I went to was uh, Professor Ina Weiner, and through her I really got into brain and neuroscience and completed my PhD under her supervision in uh, psychobiology.
1: And, and your PhD was about what? What was the subject of it?
0: So it was about uh, several regions of the brain, the basal ganglia and the cortex, and how they interconnect. And I also created a revolution there because the idea at that time was that they work in parallel, segregated circuits. And uh, I suggested that this is not true on the basis of the anatomical data, and that they actually interconnect, which is now the common, uh, you know, common understanding of how they work.
1: So your 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 contribution to the conversation was that you basically said that there are all the different parts, all the different regions of the brain actually interconnect. Yeah,
0: for this specific uh, set of regions, they were interconnected, but they thought they were interconnected in parallel circuits. And I thought there was crosstalk between the circuits because one was uh, more responsible about emotional uh, uh, processing, another about cognitive processing, and the last about motor processing. And I thought they were all interacting and governing each other.
1: Now when you google up your name the first thing that comes up is the whole discussion about uh, the female brain versus the male brain uh, so tell us a little bit, a, a little bit about that i'm i'm very curious what was the
0: So but let uh, me just say that this oh. this was also an accident the way i got into this because i was studying something completely different i was studying a neural mechanisms of obsessive compulsive disorder because it was a, a, a disorder that um that demonstrated the type of interaction that I assumed was going on in the brain between the different circuits, parallel circuits. So this is why I started studying this uh, disorder. And at some point, uh, a dear colleague and friend of mine, Professor Ariella Friedman, uh, retired. And she asked me to take over her course on the psychology of gender. And although I never studied gender or feminist studies, I was always a feminist, so I said, okay, this is important that the psychology department has a course on on gender studies. And while I was preparing this course as a neuroscientist, obviously I read a lot about sex and the brain, and I ran into a study that showed that sex effects on the brain could be opposite under different conditions. And this was like, ooh, this is strange, you know, this never happens with genitalia, right? They they stay the same throughout our lives, they do not change because we are stressed or whatever and this started me on a completely new track so i completely left studying ocd obsessive compulsive disorder and switched completely to studying sex brain and gender
1: so but okay so before we we jump into the your discovery and if you can tell us about what was the conventional wisdom before you started your your research if you could just educate our our audience about just how the neurological pathways in our brain work.
0: Well, this is a big question.
1: Well, try. Let's try to simplify it, because people. My my whole point is to um, um, convey the message that there is a way to rewire. This is my understanding. Now, the the many of the practice of the practitioners, um, especially when it comes to learning disabilities and so on. I know that because of of my own experience. Um, There is a way to rewire neurological pathways in the brain, and that's the way today we understand um, uh, research. Am I correct about that?
0: I wouldn't want to go this direction because I think it's very complex and we know very little about how the brain works and this changes, this understanding changes all the time. And what I've been doing in the past, I don't know, more than a decade now, is not really uh, looking into this, but instead trying to understand how people think about sex and the brain and the relations between sex and the brain and, you know, the very common myths that there are male and female brains and challenge this understanding. So that
1: was the conventional wisdom when you started, that there's a male brain and a female brain. Right. And what did you discover?
0: Okay, and just people were making and still are making, you know, tons of money out of claiming that men are from Mars, m- women from Venus, uh, there are male brains and female brains and what I discovered and this was based on this observation in rats and there are many studies like this showing that sex effects on the brain can be reversed by different manipulations or in other words that what determines the structure and function of the brain is an interaction between sex and many different other variables and what I realized is that these different effects do not add up consistently within individual to create two types of brains, male brains and female brains. Or in other words, what's typical of the brain of men is not to only have male-typical features. And what's typical of the brains of me- women is not to have only female-typical features. This was the, the dogma. This is still in some places the dogma. What I realized is what's typical of the human brain, regardless of your sex category, is to have both male typical and female typical features. And this was a revolution. So usually when we think, because of the binary framework, when we think about sex and the brain or anything else, the only question we ask is, are men and women the same or different? And what we discovered for the brain is that this is the wrong answer, because the answer is we are all different, and sex category provides very little information on how we would be similar or different to the brain of someone
1: else's. Now, why is it um, that an industry was created throughout history um, to uh, separate between the two? What was the motivation there socially and and, um, perhaps financially?
0: So this is a big question, and there are different answers to this question of why many cultures have separation. This type of separation between men, and males, and females. Uh, at least as far as we know, most cultures separate in roles. So some uh, some roles in society are segregated by sex, but others are not. And different societies differ. But not all societies have this hierarchical organization of society in which males are considered better, or females are considered better, this is very rare, but that males are considered better. And these societies, they need um, some kind of a common story to explain why this is so and why this is okay, because otherwise people will, you know, uh, go against this social order if they they lose from it. And... Um, you see different religions, so they have stories that explain why, why men are better. Better, We have this in Genesis, for example. Uh, we have two stories in Genesis. One is an, an equal story that God created males and females and gave them the earth to rule. And the other that most of us know with uh, creating men first and then creating women from the rib, etc. So this is a story of unequal roles and status in society. And when uh, modern science emerged in the 17th century, science took the role of religion in explaining social order. And they explained not only the uh, unjust social order regarding sex, they also explained why the poor are poor and why uh, white men are better than black men, for example, etc. And they attributed everything to the brain. And the only thing that remained up until our days is a story about the male and female brain because no, nowadays no one will say that Chinese, for example, are not as good as white people because something in the brain, even though there are differences uh, between different ethnic groups in the brain.
1: But not between men and women.
0: Yes, there are group-level differences between the brains of men and women, but they do not add up to two types of brains. So this is a revolution that I introduced not about whether there are group level differences or not the question is whether there are two types of brains as they are two types of reproductive systems and we do have two types of reproductive systems you can reproduce only as male or female some people cannot reproduce they are intersex but in the brain we are all intersex if you want so all of us have a mosaic each a unique mosaic of male typical and now, female typical features
1: so what are the implications of your discovery scientifically and beyond that so
0: scientifically um, it means that if you want to study for example the neural mechanisms of language you shouldn't look at uh, sex you shouldn't introduce sex as an independent variable because it will only create uh, false positive differences or false positive results. It's better to just treat human brains as a single highly heterogeneous, but single highly heterogeneous population. So this would be for research. In the, um, uh, in the social order, I want to, um, I do not think that biology should guide our moral decisions. So the question of, for example, uh, are men and women or are humans good or bad by nature has nothing to do with how we want to organize society. It's a very interesting philosophical question, maybe, but it's not a moral question or a social question. So even if we discovered that humans are bad by nature, then what would we do about this? Should we cancel police, courts, etc. and then say, okay, we're bad, let's just celebrate this? Obviously not. So the same with sex. It doesn't matter whether there are male and female brains. This should not inform us regarding how we want to organize society. However, having said that, it is easier to convince people that we should let go of the binary social order which harms everyone, males and females, if they understand that people are mosaic. Because when you realize that everyone is mosaic, not just you, because I'm sure you knew this about yourself, you didn't know about your brain, but you can recognize some feminine and some masculine characteristics of yourself, psychological characteristics. But now you can understand that everyone is like this. And if we are all mosaic, why should we have this gender binary system that imposes this distinction? And let us, you know, tell us what we are supposed to do and not supposed to do because of our genitalia.
1: Now, do you see any implications of your discovery on the world of medicine?
0: Yes, so again, what we are trying to do is turn the binary presumption, so the pre assumption that humans with male and female genitalia belong to two types in every respect, we try to turn this into an empirical question. So it is interesting or important also in medicine to ask where the sex category is very important. For example, reproductive medicine, very important, brain, not important. Okay, but we showed this empirically. So this is a question open for every domain in which sex differences are found. So we hear a lot, for example, that there are differences in how men and women uh, present when they have a a stroke or when they have a cardiac arrest. So it's important to realize, do we have two species here that we need to treat differently or should we only... um, uh, research or invest everyone, men and women, old and young, et cetera, to cover the entire human variability, but we should not treat dif- people differently just because of the sex category.
1: Now, based on your experience, um, is the world of practitioners out there uh, open to your ideas?
0: So we are now in a transition between studying only men and assuming that everyone is like men, so men are humans and that's it, to now... Uh, going with uh, gender medicine to thinking of men and women as belonging to two types, and the truth is somewhere in between. So it's important to study both men and women to cover the entire human variability. But it is wrong to pre, you know, to assume in advance that men and women belong to two types in every respect. And just to give an example that would be easy, so if you have uh, some cardiovascular problem and you come to your physician, we know that it's important whether you were uh, smoking and how much, and whether you do physical exercise. These are all important things for your um, uh, future with this disease. Should we use your sex category to assume that you are doing a lot of sport and have been smoking? Uh, or if you're a female, to assume that you are not doing sport uh, and has not been smoking because there is a group-level difference in physical exercise and smoking between men and women? Or should I just ask you, you know, for how many years have you been smoking, how much, and what kind of physical exercise do you do? So I think the answer is, you know, very clear. We need to find the important variable and look at them, and we should not use sex category as a proxy for these variables.
1: So... Um, Thinking about the growing uh, role and importance that artificial intelligence is going to play in our lives in the future, already is playing. Um, So I'm assuming, and please educate us, that what you discovered uh, would have uh, tremendous implications on uh, AI models in the future.
0: Well, it depends. So AI models, the problem is that they uh, recreate the biases that are in the data. So the way they are trained now, they are very biased, and a lot of work is being invested into how to de-bias them. Um, I'm not sure the mosaic is what's needed here. I think there is a lot of um, uh, knowledge and awareness of the biases, not just in terms of sex, but also ethnic groups, etc. And people working with AI will have to find solutions because AI can both help us but also create a lot of... uh, this uh, disju- uh, injustice.
1: Now, what's next for you? So, you you, you have your discovery, um, which made a lot of noise in the scientific world, in the popular media. Uh, what's next?
0: So, now we're moving from studying the brain to studying gender and asking similar questions. So, now everyone is talking about gender mm-hmm. ideology. Doesn't matter what you think, you are being blamed by gender ideology of all sides. So, we're trying to invest uh, again, to to use empirical uh, or to turn this into an empirical question, where is the sex category or dividing us into two categories really relevant and important, and where not? So, for example, uh, issues about uh, the relations. So I, I said first that we are also mosaic in being have having both feminine and masculine characteristics. So this should, you know, inform education. For example, we should not say things like, "All the boys take a ball, go play outside. The girls." come listen to a story assuming that there are two types of kids but we are going beyond this to ask about the relations between gender identity gender roles um, attitudes towards the body etc and to see where we indeed the norms are correct in terms of what we find the idea that Humans with male genitalia will be attracted to females. Will have masculine characteristics, etc. And humans with female genitalia will be another kind. Or whether whether we are, you know, see a lot of overlap and dynamic and mosaicism. So this is what we're studying now.
1: So obviously, I'm assuming that you are also uh, thinking about a way to um, convey this. The findings, which are empirical. Uh, To people that naturally um, resist change, and most organizations resist change, even organizations that their job is to produce creative ideas have a very difficult time being creative. Uh, I say this from a personal experience. And so um, I'm sure you're spending uh, some energy about thinking, how do we... um, convey this message message in a way that, uh, doesn't create, um, um, you know, I don't want to use the word opposition, but creates better understanding of what is it that you're talking about? Because sometimes, you know, people have a tendency to react harshly things that they don't understand.
0: So, yes, I I do. I think it's very important to go outside the university to the general public so I uh, collaborated with a professional writer to write a book about the whole idea of the gender mosaic and going beyond the male and female brain and my vision of a future without gender. So this was one project. And now we are really already launched a, a website in which people can explore their own gender mosaic. So you can answer a set of questions and then see how feminine or masculine you are in each trait, So see your mosaic and also how your mosaic changes when you change your comparison group, because obviously what's feminine and what's masculine differs across cultures. So the questionnaire is in already in 10 different languages. And uh, also you can compare yourself to different 10 countries, I think, around the world. So you can see how, you know, your mosaic in comparing to an American sample and compare it to a sample from Japan, for example. Very different, obviously.
1: And uh, And tell us a little bit about your network of other researchers and universities that are working on the same thing. I'm assuming you're not alone.
0: So in a sense, still I am, uh, because the idea of the mosaic is orthogonal to different uh, types of uh, feminist uh, critique of the dogma of the male and female brain. So for centuries, centuries actually, uh, feminists have argued that the idea of the male and female brain is not correct because there is a lot of overlap between men and women, and also because the question of the nature versus nurture. So yes, we see a difference, but why is it there? Is it because of nature or is it because you know we were treated differently from the moment we were born? And the idea of the mosaic, the question of whether these differences, regardless of the source and how much overlap they, they have, Do these differences add up consistently within each brain or individual? This is a a unique and a new question that I introduced into the field. Uh, And currently, I don't think there are many other labs. I mean, we are collaborating with some labs and doing the mosaic analysis on their data, but I don't think many people are already using it the same way we do. Although most many people do uh, relate to the brain now as mosaic, so you can see papers starting in the introduction yes there are differences but obviously everyone is mosaic and then continuing so mm-hmm. it it was so you know you can see this idea but I don't know how many people are studying it like we do
1: that's that's fascinating that the um, uh, you know I'm um, I have a friend who's studying uh, the brain at uh, Reichmann University his name is Professor Amir amedi I don't know if you know him I do you do know Amir. And so I just spent a few days with him in Mexico in which he shared with us uh, the work that he did with uh, blind and deaf people, uh, which, uh, and so, um, you know, I'm not, I know nothing about the brain, really. uh, But I do know that uh, creativity happens in the brain. And my question to you is, what have you learned about human creativity from your work? I,
0: I don't. I'm not sure I learned anything about human creativity. <laughs> I'm so, creative, but I, I'm not sure that I learned about creativity.
1: Okay, so when you think about your own creativity, right, uh, what would you say are the, um, you know, what what can we do in order to enhance creative thinking in our society? Because I think one of the problems that we have today, especially with this information overload, that is our, the human brain is unable to handle all those stimulations. Clearly, uh, the world has gone, has gone crazy because of it. Question is, what can be done, uh, and you as someone who studies the brain, uh, in order to let people uh, or allow people to have the tools to better cope with this? And I think that creativity is essential.
0: So I think first, education is important and basic education is important. We thought for a short while that with Google and, you know, and the Internet, we don't le- learn to teach uh, kids basic stuff because they will, can just Google it. But it's not true because Google gives you everything. And if you don't have basic knowledge about things, then you cannot, you know, uh, find the true things from the, all the garbage that is also there. So I think first you need solid uh, knowledge, not the one that you get just from the Internet. And the other thing is interdisciplinarity. So I think for me, the reason that I could do this, you know, creative step or adding a new idea into a domain that many people studied already is because I was uh, an incomer. So I came from a different field. And this is why I could see things that people that were already in the dogma could not see. It's like the fish that cannot say that uh, they are wet. So it's the same. You know, you have to come from a different field to a a field to see things differently. So I think it's really important to have a more interdisciplinary education. And I think in Israel we have a problem because we start late, because we have the army. Most students study only one field and we don't have this basic education that you have, for example, in the States in which people study from the humanities and from social sciences and, you know, different sciences before they specialize. And I think this general knowledge or education is really important for creativity.
1: I couldn't agree with you more, you know. I... Um uh, I hear all the time people telling me that there's shortage of engineers, um, and as someone who studied um, here in the Faculty of the Arts and, and uh, Social Science, I um, um, I see really with great concern the decline of humanities and social sciences in uh, in Israel, and I think it's one of the reasons why we have why we're having such difficulties conveying the importance of democracy today in Israel. I think it has a lot to do with that. Well, we're running out of time. I just wanted to thank you for educating us. It's been a real pleasure. And Thank you. And to our viewers and listeners, until our next episode, goodbye from Tel Aviv. This is
0: Taiwan Bound, the English language podcast of Tel Aviv University. Please welcome your host, Ido Aroni, Tel Aviv University's graduate, Member of the Board of Governors, lecturer, writer and veteran diplomat.